<clears throat> uh, today is April 9th, 2023, and for Teisho this morning, um, I'm going to continue <clears throat> on the theme of last, my last Teisho back in, uh, back in March, uh, which was practice off the mat. So this is maybe part two, or we could call it stop fixing yourselves. Uh, <clears throat> I kind of uh, realized I had more to say when uh, Sashin ended and I saw people in Doksan and so many people, just surprising number, um, with the same theme, which is uh, in Sashin, I can get to this place where I'm so focused and clear. And now a few days later, where has it gone? Um, <clears throat> What do I keep from Sashin? And uh, uh, what do I do to stay connected, connected to my life? So <clears throat> it's, a, <laughs> it's pretty common. Uh, the first thing to say is something Roshi um, emphasizes all the time, and I do the same, which is there's no way when you're not sitting 10 hours a day and working and going about your day in complete silence, except for, <clears throat> of course, except for Doksan, there's no way you can be in the same concentrated state when you go from that to your daily life and all the different things we do, all the distractions and all the concerns and worries and planning. Um, <clears throat> they're just two different animals. But what we learn in Sashin is we learn the way in. We learn what we need to do. We, we, we come to terms with how difficult it is and how simple it is. It's just this. We get a, a, a taste, a flavor of just being present, being here in this moment. It's wonderful. <clears throat> and then we have the task of making that come to life in our lives. And that's, that's a harder task, it really is. going to be affected if we're chasing after our thoughts and letting our minds wander. But even if we find ourselves in the thick of that, the way has still been cleared. And anyone who's been going to Sashin for a long time or simply just keeping up a daily practice on a steady basis, <clears throat> if you look, if you look at your life if you want to step outside practice for a moment and compare it to the way it was a year ago or some months ago, uh, you'll find things have changed. And the more sincerely we work, the more that change happens. <clears throat> but what is, it, what is it that makes it so difficult? Why is it that we feel that we're backsliding 
And uh, why, when we try to return to some sort of intimacy with our practice and with our life, why do we feel stuck? Why doesn't it click into place <clears throat> the way it did before, the way we think it does for other people? And the answer is probably looking in the wrong direction. We're looking at how it was before, and we're hoping it's going to be how we want it <clears throat> in the future. Maybe in the next minute, please. Um, it's just, it's just, if you're, if you're asking how can I keep my focus, <clears throat> I think we can all understand, you're not focused. You're, you're looking at my, what, what's my condition? How am I doing? How am I going to do? You know, is this working? Those are all legitimate questions, I guess, but it's not practice. You're not, <laughs> you're not becoming one with the practice. You're, you're looking at, you're standing apart. <clears throat> You've divided yourself from your life, and that doesn't really work. It's natural to do that. It's how we do everything else in our lives. Check in, see how I'm doing, <clears throat> make some course corrections, and a little bit of that in practice is normal and probably a good idea. It is good to know, you make sure, yeah, I'm going in the right direction. But the, the, the engine of practice is our surrender to this moment, our willingness to be with things as they are. My favorite mantra is, right now it's like this, however it is. <clears throat> There's a significant difference between wanting to see what's real and wanting to fix ourselves. And I'm going to uh, dip for a moment into uh, our old friend, old good friend, Anthony DeMello, uh, for people who haven't been subjected to Anthony DeMello before. I will just say he's a, he was, he, he died a, a, some years back, a Jesuit priest born in India, <clears throat> in Goa, I believe, uh, but to a Catholic family. And uh, he, at some point, I think, studied with, uh, with a Vipassana teacher, uh, Genka, pretty well-known one, and uh, clearly has a lot of insight. And uh, he's written a number of different books and gave talks all over the country, mostly to Catholic lay workers and priests. <clears throat> and this is from a book I've never read from before. Somebody gave it to me. It's called Stop Fixing Yourself. <clears throat> I just want to read a little chapter entitled Your Sad History of Self-Improvement. <laughs> he says, compare the serene and simple splendor of a rose in bloom with the tensions and restlessness of your life. The rose has a gift that you lack. It is perfectly content to be itself. It has not been programmed from birth as you have been to be dissatisfied with itself, so it doesn't have the slightest urge to be anything other than what it is. 
It possesses the artless grace and absence of inner conflict that among humans is found only in little children and mystics. Only the adult human, only the adult human being is able to be one thing and pretend to be another. <clears throat> Think of the sad history of your self-improvement efforts. They ended either in disaster or they succeeded only at the cost of struggle and pain. <clears throat> and we could add the cost of rigidity and uh, irritability. So many of the uh, self-improvement projects that we take on have a sort of locking down and shutting out the parts of our life that we don't like <clears throat> and beating up on ourselves with predictable results. He says, you're always dissatisfied with yourself, always wanting to change yourself, always wanting more. <clears throat> so you are full of violence and self-intolerance, which only grows with every effort that you make to change yourself. Thus, any change you achieve is inevitably accompanied by inner conflict. Either, and, and often accompanied by denial. We want to be better than we are, and we start by pretending we're better than we are. <clears throat> and then we go on to compare ourselves to others. Or if we're failing miserably, then we compare ourselves with others and think how we're worse than everybody. Everyone else has got the secret, I'm an idiot. I should probably just give up. <clears throat> he says, Suppose you stopped all efforts to change yourself and ended all self-dissatisfaction. Would you then be doomed to go to sleep at night having passively accepted everything in you and around you? There is another choice besides laborious self-pushing on the one hand and stagnant acceptance on the other. It is the way of self-understanding. It is far from easy because to understand what you are requires complete freedom from all desire to change what you are into something else. You just can't do both at once. You can't be dissatisfied with where you are, you're at and really be where you're at. You're always running away. You're always grasping or pushing away. Incidentally, that's the second noble truth, cause of our suffering is our grasping and our aversion. It's ironic that in order to <clears throat> follow the Buddha way, we just deployed exactly that approach. Everybody, everybody does that. Because as he says, has said earlier, we're programmed to do that. That's how people work. <clears throat> but he says, consider the attitude of a scientist who studies the habits of ants, that's ants, little crawly bugs, without the slightest desire to change them. He has no other aim. He's not attempting to train them or get anything out of them. He's interested in ants. He wants to learn as much as possible about them. That's his attitude. I have such respect for some of the great scientists of, you know, <clears throat> of our era. Uh, just the passion to know, 
willingness to go wherever their curiosity leads them. My, my, my role model is Richard Feynman. Uh, if you ever have a chance, check him out. <laughs> Find him on YouTube. He says, the day you attain a posture like that, you will experience a miracle. You will change effortlessly and correctly. Change will happen. You will not have to bring it about. If what you attempt is not to change yourself, but to observe yourself, to study every one of your reactions to people and things without judgment, condemnation, or desire to reform yourself, your observations will be non-selective, comprehensive, never fixed on rigid conclusions, and always open and fresh from moment to moment. Then you will notice a marvelous thing happening within you. You will become flooded with the light of awareness. You will become transparent and transformed. <clears throat> the change that we're looking for is not a change that we can manufacture and direct. It's the whole reason for practice. That's why we have a method. Just by giving our attention to what's right in front of us, to the breath, to a fundamental question, a koan, <clears throat> just to the sensation of inhabiting this body on this mat. Just by doing that, things change. And our preoccupation with the things we're worried about and the things that we feel aren't good enough for us, <clears throat> dissatisfaction moves into the background, moves away. It becomes just one of the many noises it's a, it's, a lot, it's a lot like learning how to deal with physical pain. A lot of people have learned that on the mat, that when your leg aches, if you just focus on the practice, focus on the pain, don't think about it, don't worry about when it's going to end or how bad it's going to get, and just sort of bring your curiosity to it, it diminishes. We keep, we keep our pain and dissatisfaction alive with our constant worrying about it. <clears throat> Can't stop picking at it. Can't stop that internal complaining. <clears throat> but when we tie the mind to our method, we just open up to what's actually there, things have a chance to change. And that change is always good change. It's not easy to stop the obsession that we have with results. It's just natural. Of course we want to do well in our practice. <clears throat> and that's our habit. It's what we've always done. We're actually learning a new habit. So much of our lives is trigger and response. There's a guy I've read from before, Robert Wright, wrote a book called Why Buddhism is True. And he talks about this theory of mind that basically one way of looking at the human mind is we have, it's sort of like a Swiss army knife. You've got all these different tools, all these different modules. So all of a sudden something uh, 
triggers you and you're going into one mode or another. Maybe it's uh, mate competition mode or uh, fight or flight or all the different behaviors that are sort of wired into us. Anybody who's a parent has probably had this experience. You're yelling at your child <clears throat> because, of course, it's a child and <clears throat> they're just unreasonable. <laughs> you know, there's that, uh, that routine that uh, the disgraced comedian Louis C.K. Uh, talks about going into a grocery store and seeing a woman yelling at her child, and he says, my reaction is not what a horrible mother. My reaction is, what did that child do to that poor woman? <laughs> You're yelling at your child and you hear your father or you hear your mother. <laughs> it's, it's just the, the weirdest thing. All of a sudden it's like, I haven't heard that voice since he was yelling at me. <clears throat> and... You know, if you're realistic, there's so much that we do that goes on automatic pilot. A lot of what practice is, is just getting into, getting underneath that, getting ourselves to wake up. But it's, it's slow because habit changes very, very slowly. And uh, from what I've read and what I intuit, habit never really goes away that pattern of behavior is wired in the brain. Those grooves have been, have been laid down. And uh, certainly that's something you find um, alcoholics who recover, who stop drinking, find if they go back out, it doesn't take much to set off the old behavior because it's all there ready to go. Program's been written. Just push a button and off you go. <clears throat> that's why a lot of alcoholics just never drink. It cuts off the pattern. <clears throat> Probably the most effective way to change any habit is to replace it with a different one. Rather than trying to white-knuckle it, find something else that you can do instead. And of course, the ultimate habit, <clears throat> the one I try to practice and recommend, is just the habit of awareness, just knowing what's going on. It's so simple, it's so available. It works so great with so many difficult emotions. You know, for instance, if you're struggling with anger, when anger flares up, where does your mind go? Does it go to what you're angry about? Do you lose yourself in, in your justifiable rage? Or do you notice what's going on in your body? Just to come back to the body is so helpful. The more you do it, the more it becomes a refuge. It's feeling the room, feeling where you are in space, noticing what's bugging you. You know, is there some fluttering tension in your chest? your jaw aching because it's so tense, <clears throat> your shoulders hiked up around your ears, just to notice that and uh, that awareness alone helps us, helps diffuse the tension. <clears throat>
but it's a pattern that requires uh, repeating again and again and again. Uh, habits don't get, you know, there, there's, there was some sort of uh, consensus <clears throat> uh, that it takes 21 days to establish a habit. Well, that's ridiculous. Um, they did some experimentation and they found that actually with a really simple habit, like let's say somebody wants to make it a habit to drink a glass of water after breakfast, yeah, maybe in about 21 days they're going to feel that's, that's really baked in. But with anything more difficult, it takes longer. And sometimes it can take a year or more. And that's when you're doing whatever it is consistently. But we do, we do establish habits that are helpful, that support us. We all learn to brush our teeth, I think. Every, every, I have a, I have a toothbrushing routine which is ridiculously long. It's, it's about 10 minutes. And that's because apparently I'm, I grow a certain kind of bacteria in my, in my mouth that makes me really, really prone to cavities. And uh, probably if I didn't do that, I would be wearing dentures at this point. Um, but at some point, my dentist, after you know, he'd urged me and I'd failed and urged me and failed, got me to start flossing and using special prescription toothpaste and... <clears throat> going through this whole routine and it was difficult it was hard it it took it took a big chunk of time at a time of day when I just want to fall into bed and go to sleep but I did it because I was tired of spending money on new teeth <laughs> and at this point it's kind of wonderful every night whatever whatever's going on I hit the bathroom and I go through that routine and it's almost a dance. It's, it's, it's pleasant. You know, I just do it. There's something I was going to get to later, but I'm going to read it right now because it really fits in now that I've run off and started to talk about teeth. It's uh, something I read uh, that was written by uh, some sort of spiritual teacher whose name is Bodhipaksa. And I'm, I'm not sure you know, what uh, kind of meditation he teaches. I believe he's Buddhist with a name like Bodhi. Um, but he says this, there's a wonderful scene in the film Adaption where the character Susan Orlean, played by Meryl Streep, begins to appreciate the act of brushing her teeth after taking a drug made from a rare orchid. Well, that's one shortcut. <laughs> As you watch her seeing herself in the mirror, she begins by brushing her teeth in the normal, habitual way. You can tell by the absent expression on her face that she's miles away thinking about something else. Then gradually, she begins to notice what she's doing and slows down. Then we see her delightedly playing as she brushes her teeth, enjoying the sensations as the bristles tickle her gums. From the way she seems to relish this simple activity, you can see that it's as if she's brushing her teeth for the first time. He goes on, one attribute of mindfulness has been described by Suzuki Roshi, that's the uh, teacher at the San Francisco Zen Center, was the teacher. Suzuki Roshi has beginner's mind. Beginner's mind arises when we let go of the been there, done that attitude that we normally carry into everyday activities. 
when we let go of the assumption that there's no point in paying attention to this experience, since we've done it a million times already, we're free, when we let go of that assumption, we're free to fully experience those sensations. Having let go of comparisons with previous experiences, we really can feel almost as if we're brushing our teeth for the first time. You may also find that brushing your teeth more mindfully and carefully leads to fewer cavities. <clears throat> For almost everyone, our comfortable, habitual resting place is our thoughts. And it really does seem to us like the safe place. When we're, when we're threatened, that's where we're going to go. That's where we fight our battles of self-improvement, uh, trying to think our way through and trying to refute our discouraged thoughts or our lazy thoughts, uh, trying to change our feelings. But we've already uh, established that that doesn't work so well. Still, we're reluctant to let it go. Evaluating how we're doing seems like practice. I mean, it's practice related, right? You're thinking about how you're doing. Isn't that practice? <clears throat> you're not thinking about breakfast or... Uh... And yet, yet, just a simple switch, simple switch of attention to move from that back to your practice, back to the method. If you're out and about during the day, back to what's right in front of you. It's just that you have to do it again and again. You have to be, you have to buy into it. You really do. And, and that, that's a process. You know, some people hear the gospel and, and, you know, they're all in right away, but that's pretty rare. You know, we all sort of have, have our doubts, want to see if this really works. <clears throat> Everybody wants to keep doing whatever they've been doing and just have the world change to accommodate them. <clears throat> there, uh, there is an interesting practice that Sheng Yen, uh, the Chinese uh, Zen master, has recommended to his students uh, that you can try to sort of give yourself a feel of, uh, of just bare attention. And I, I just want to trot it out because I found it really useful and uh, interesting. He did this during a, a retreat and uh, just threw, some of this, threw this in. He said, I would like to introduce you to another method of practice. I think of this as an auxiliary method rather than an alternative to those we have been discussing. And of course, he's discussing koan practice, breath practice, and uh, shikantaza, just sitting, which in China is referred to as silent illumination. He says, you may use it at times when it seems especially conducive to do so. The essential idea is to regard whatever arises directly what, to regard whatever arises directly with no thought, interpretation, examination, or questioning whatever. <clears throat> so not even questioning. 
which of course is the, the heart of koan practice. He says, just look at it or listen to it exactly as it is in an immediate apperception of whatever appears before you. In this activity, there should be no self-reference or involvement of the self in judgment or intention. In a way, we cannot call it either meditation or practice because there is no purposeful intention to go anywhere at all. The object of contemplation is simply allowed to be. Direct means directly, immediately, right now and here. The word contemplation means a method that, quote, allows one to go through a door. When one goes through a door, there is both an exit and an entry. Here one exits the world of thought, judgment, evaluation, self, and time. One enters the immediate presence, the nowness of the object, be it a landscape, the sky, a stone, or an image. It simply presents itself before one. You do nothing except regard it or hear it. <clears throat> In this regard, however, there should be an alert attentiveness, something like a nonverbal expectancy without anything in particular being expected. The mind needs to be very bright to reflect the object as a mirror does. Perhaps it is like looking straight at the moon rather than using a finger to point to it. I find I, I fall into doing this sometimes when I'm taking a walk. <clears throat> I have a dog who encourages me to take a daily walk. And when we're uh, in my neighborhood, just all these catalpa trees uh, as we walk by, really interesting old trees and just to look at them without thinking of the name just just appear it really settles the mind it really gives you a flavor for what we mean by direct experience it's a useful thing to try gives a little bit more practical advice if anybody wants to try this at some point. He says, when you contemplate directly, whether in sitting, standing, or walking, simply choose something that attracts you in the immediate vicinity. It may be something you see or something you hear, but you should only use one of the sense faculties, not more. <clears throat> in, order, in other words, don't try to do shikantaza. Focus brightly on the object and do not add any preconceived ideas, experiences, words, or questions. Although you should not let such ideas arise when practicing, there are nonetheless four stages that you may be able to detect in retrospect afterwards. First, allow yourself to settle down, to regulate the breath and let go. Then let the sense fa faculty focus on the cho chosen object while you forget what it is you are regarding. Forget its name, description, its likable or unlikable features. <clears throat> As the focus becomes stable, the mind will become still and spacious. One is entering illumination. This is why I call it an auxiliary method. Of course, the method is prone to the usual deviations, drowsiness, wandering thoughts, fear, illusions. If these cannot be set aside, it may be best to stop and renew the session later. Often you get a sense of when it is appropriate to do it and may then act on it. <clears throat> Then he sends his students out into the field to uh, go practice that. 
says it could be some distant feature or something close up, a stone, a grass blade, or a flower, for example. If you choose a distant object, do not let the eyes wander around. Allow the birds to fly across the screen of vision. Do not follow them. Continue to hold the attention on your chosen object. See how long you can hold your attention in this way and what results from that. When you lose it, rest a moment and then start again. As he says, it's an auxiliary method, but I think I, in my own personal experience, I found it really helpful just to get a flavor of just this. So much of, you know, what's presented to us is words. This is a way to go beyond those words to the reality. As he says, to see the moon and not the finger pointing at the moon. What we're really doing is we're stopping our attempts to move from here to there. We're learning to just be here. We just recited Master Hakwin's chant in praise of Zazen. He says, how near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water crying, I thirst. <clears throat> all of us, all of us are in the midst of truth, in the midst of reality. And somehow we want to go there. We are there. It's a... Uh, <clears throat> It's like somebody at a cocktail party talking to someone, but they're not really paying attention because they keep looking over that person's shoulder for somebody more interesting who may walk into the room. It's really what we do with our practice, trying to bring the mind to the method, focus on the breath, for example. <clears throat> Maybe there's something better. A lot of times it's just a picture of some other state when we were focused on the breath. So ironic that somebody can, especially when you're new to Zazen, you can get into a really surprisingly concentrated state and then you can spend weeks trying to recreate that experience. But you're not doing what you did when you became concentrated. You're no longer paying attention to the breath. You're imagining yourself paying attention to the breath and you're focusing on that. <clears throat> it's both ridiculous and frustrating. It's really it's really good piece of advice. If you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. Real practice isn't something special. It's, it's just becoming invested in our lives as they are. It's, it's really internalizing that right now it's like this. It's being willing to be just a garden variety human being. The French philosopher Montaigne said, 
I'm like other people except in this one thing, and that is that I know I'm just like other people. There's a, there's a real power in knowing what's going on with us, being attuned to what we're feeling in the body, knowing what thoughts are going through our head, <clears throat> knowing that they're just thoughts. It's a real important step. Most thoughts, most thoughts that have the real emotional content to them, we're, we're locked into the emotion before we even realize that's just a thought. Why do I believe what I think? I think stupid things all the time. <clears throat> We, we, we commit to taking it all in. Really take to heart that it's all grist for the mill. The uh, Zen teacher Charlotte Joko Beck said, when we refuse to work with our disappointment, we break the precepts. Rather than experiencing the disappointment, we resort to anger, greed, gossip, criticism. Yet it's the moment of being that, being that disappointment which is fruitful. And if we're not willing to do that, at least we should notice that we are not willing. The moment of disappointment in life is an incomparable gift that we receive many times a day if we're alert. This gift is always present in anyone's life, that moment when, quote, it's not the way I want it. <clears throat> Another teacher called it a compassionate alarm clock reminding us you're lost in the dream. It seems counterintuitive to go into the pain, to go into the unhappiness, the dissatisfaction, but that's absolutely where we need to go. Otherwise, we've walled off part of our lives and we become incomplete. I read something about Charlotte Joko Beck on a blog written by another Zen teacher, James Ford. I think it's called Monkey Mind. He said this about her. Her style emphasized the ordinariness of Zen. One of her Dharma heirs, Elihu Genmyo Smith, once wrote of a Dharma talk she gave. She said, I am fully present about 15 to 20 percent of the time. This frankness thrilled many as it went against the idealized and nearly unattainable image that Zen teachers were always fully present. <clears throat> Among her heirs, Dr. Barry Magid noted, known as Magid or Magid, to me, Joko always stressed experiencing the absolute in the midst of the everyday. Staying with anger or anxiety wasn't so much a technique for dealing with emotion as a way of seeing emotion itself, resistance itself as it not as obstacles on the path to be worked through and removed, but as the path itself. <clears throat> That's a really difficult attitude to have. But when, when you're like that scientist, really interested in how you work, what makes you tick, what's going on, you begin to approach that. You feel anxiety, and you can become curious about, well, where does that show up, you know? 
there's that old familiar feeling in my chest. What happens to it when I just observe it? It's a very delicate dance because when you look into those things, in the back of your mind is the thought, well, if I really do look into it closely and disinterestedly, it'll go away. <laughs> no, 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 no. That doesn't work so well. But, you know, it's trial and error. Just keep, keep going in there. Keep looking. Keep coming back. Back to this moment. Very, very rare that we need to plan and think about what's coming up. Sure, we do sometimes, but you could spend 95% of your life not doing that and you would have more than enough time to plan for every contingency. Most of what we do in our planning is just repeating the same thoughts over and over again. <clears throat> I read once a quote from Henry Miller, the author, uh, uh, something I saw him say in a video, and I'm going to repeat it right now. It is, the, he says this, the idea is, you know, you live from moment to moment. This moment decides the next step. You shouldn't be five steps ahead, only the very next one. And if you can keep to that, you're always all right. You see? But people are thinking too far ahead. You know what I mean? Think only what's right there. Do only what's right under your nose to do. You know, it's such a simple thing and people can't do it. You know? So the, the video is great. He's sitting at his desk in his pajamas smoking a cigarette. It's, it's, really, it's really sort of like we're changing our diet from chasing after things to something more nutritious. You know, it's, it's like your day doesn't need to be filled with uh, reading the daily gossip that never seems to change. When, when we go away and do sashin for a week and come back, it's amazing how little has normally changed. <clears throat> but there's so much there we have so much that we can build into our lives that's healthy that settles the mind you know just to get outdoors and walk just to spend time with friends that we love just to sit to breathe To appreciate what's beautiful. To give thanks for all the amazing things we have in our lives. Thanks for this practice that we've found, somehow lucked into. It's good to reflect, if you want to do some thinking, on how short our lives are. A little time there is if you have a remember one somebody with an example of uh, if you have a good 
friend you meet in college and then you both go off to different cities and maybe you see each other every two years or so. All the time you spent with them when you were together, how much more time will you have now? You see them once every couple years for a day maybe. It's, it's short. If you have kids, how long will they be this age? They're growing up so fast. Now, are you there or are you not? <clears throat> Wouldn't that be wonderful if we could just go back and do it over again? What is it that we need to do the most in life? It's just to be present. I'm going to finish by reading something that I forgot to bring with me the last talk I gave. It's a poem by the, uh, the poet Mary Oliver. It's called The Summer Day. It reads like this. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is, I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? <clears throat> good place to stop. We'll now recite the four vows.